Good afternoon to those in the east coast of the United States. Um, good evening uh, for to those uh, in the Middle East and uh, places between. Uh, thank you for uh, tuning in to number 10 uh, uh, of our private virtual Wilson policy briefs. Uh, as this telework period stretches on, we're continuing to provide crucial analysis of the COVID-19 issues, but we're also envisioning a world beyond the pandemic. And some of our discussion today, which I will mention in a moment, will touch on that. Meanwhile, we have a star-studded cast of our um, best friends and nearest and dearest supporters on this call, including the ambassador of Qatar and Ambassador John Negroponte, a former U.S. ambassador to four countries and the husband of our very own Diana Negroponte. We have three board members, Wilson board members, uh, Barry Jackson, uh, David Jacobson, and Earl Stafford on the call. We have our Global Advisory Council co-chairs, uh, General David Petraeus and Sir John Scarlett, and members of the Global Advisory Council, Mohammed Alardi, Dinesh Paliwal, John Phelan, and Ken Slater, and lots of members of our council and dearest friends. Uh, thank you all for your regular uh, interest in both the intellectual uh, uh, <laughs> excellence of the Wilson Center and in sustaining the Wilson Center. It means a lot to all of us. Uh, so, one of the many lessons this crisis has taught us uh, is that while it is difficult to build international consensus, uh, going alone is worse. The countries with the closest friends and allies are in the best position to keep themselves safe and protect the international community at large, uh, and I think we're seeing this play out uh, across the world. Uh, I just note that in today's newspaper is... a. Uh, uh, some suggestion that the WHO is meeting without the U.S. I personally think that's very worrisome, and maybe we'll discuss some of that on the call. So today we are having uh, a timely conversation on U.S. strategy in one part of the world, the Indo-Pacific region, which stretches across India, Australia, China, and a dozen countries in between. China is top of mind for almost everyone these days, think WHO, which I just mentioned, but the truth is that America's renewed focus on the broader Indo-Pacific, which accounts for 60% of the world's population and 66% of global GDP, has been years in the making. Many of you know of the United States' so-called pivot to Asia, which came into vogue thanks to President Obama's defense and state departments. Uh, at least the, 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 the moniker came into vogue thanks to them. Um, there actually uh, was more to it, but at any rate... Um, uh, it has been uh, uh, continued in modified form during the Trump administration. Joining us today to preview his new book is one of those Obama-era DOD officials. Oh, dear, an Obama-era DOD official. I hope he's laughing. Who has since become a distinguished member of the Wilson family. Abe Denmark is the director of our Asia program, a senior fellow in our Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S., and an adjunct associate professor at Georgetown. Before all that, he was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for East Asia, for which he received the Secretary of Defense's Medal for Outstanding Performance. Abe's book, entitled U.S. Strategy in the Asian Century, Empowering Allies and Partners, 
will be out will be out in August from Columbia University Press. It is a country to country, uh, country by country exploration of why the Indo-Pacific matters to the U.S. economic, political, and security interests, as well as an actionable blueprint for our future relationship. He argues not only how the United States can strengthen our alliances and partnerships, but why they are so important, especially in times like these. Um, I look forward, and hope you do, to hearing Abe uh, walk us through his argument and share his take on the future of the Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, please note, uh, as always, that the first portion of this conversation will be recorded and will be followed by an off-the-record Q&A segment. I think the operator this time said that you need to tap star one on your phone and we will develop a cue. Uh, if that information is wrong, um, at, at the end of Abe's presentation, I will get you the corrected information to remind historically we have not done it that way. We have done uh, emails to nora.bodner at wilsoncenter.org. But at any rate, uh, we do want to hear from you, and we will hear from you uh, following uh, the presentation of our Asia Program Director, Abe Denmark. Over to you, Abe. Thank you so much, Jane, and good afternoon, everybody. Um, uh, it's really uh, an honor to be able to present my book to you. It's really the first presentation that I've made about this book, um, and I'll try to keep it brief. The book right now clocks in at about 330 pages, so... Um, really, my presentation today is just going to be outlining the primary arguments of the book, uh, mostly to set up the subsequent conversation that we'll have. And um, as I always do, just as a caveat at the beginning, these are, are really just my views alone, not those of the Wilson Center or of the U.S. government. Um, I started writing the book, actually, um, with the support of a grant from the Smith Richardson Foundation, um, broadly with the guidance to write a book uh, or write an analysis about getting our allies and partners in Asia to do more. And for me, it was really an opportunity to go beyond the usual arguments one hears about this issue, saying that we need to get our allies to do more, uh, but really to dig into some of the key assumptions that go into these debates, uh, looking at what do we want our allies and partners to do? Why? Uh, how do we get them to do these things? And how do they think about it? So I started to write this book actually uh, far too long ago, and actually started in 2014, but I had to shelve it. Uh, when I was asked uh, to go into the Pentagon uh, to serve as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, um, when I worked on a lot of alliances and worked on China-North Korea issues. Um, and so when I came out of the Pentagon at the end of the Obama administration, I realized I had to throw out a lot of what I'd written, um, in large part because of the dramatic changes about how I thought about these issues. Um, but second, as the Trump administration began to put in its policies, I realized that I had to uh, change how I was are talking about alliances and partnerships, considering the president's take on, uh, on these relationships as unfair and expensive. Uh, so I realized I had to start to rewrite the whole thing again um, and really adding another question, why do these alliances and partnerships matter? So to put it shortly, uh, quickly, the, the main arguments of this book in one paragraph uh, is basically that the rise of China and deepening uncertainties about the reliability and sustainability of American power is driving a tectonic shift in the uh, balance of power in the Indo-Pacific, which threatens to undermine the region's liberal order, which has been essential to the region's stability and prosperity since the end of the Second World War. The book describes the future regional power dynamics as uh, what I call a, a heterarchy, 
It's a series of overlapping hierarchies of power across multiple domains. Uh, and that Asia's middle powers will pursue complex hedging strategies to maintain their independence and sovereignty, while also continuing to look to the United States as the only power that can credibly push back against China. So the book calls on the U.S. to adjust its approach to the Indo-Pacific by building its own power in the region uh, to address emerging power dynamics, uh, and especially by empowering allies and partners to maintain liberal principles within an evolving regional order. I'll spend the rest of my time to uh, dig into each of these ideas a bit, um, and leaving a lot of the details for the Q&A of where you all would be interested. Uh, so the first main point to make is that allies and partnerships are a tremendous geopolitical asset for the United States and have played a highly consequential role in the United States in our foreign and national security policy really since before our founding. Uh, historically, allies and partners have functioned both as a complement to American power as well as a conduit for American power. This has been especially true in Asia since the end of the Second World War. It was during this period when the U.S. established the structure of East Asian alliances and partnerships that we have today, um, which during the Cold War served to deter large-scale Soviet aggression and contain the spread of communism, while also enabling the United States to exert its influence around the world. Uh, the second main point is that in the Indo-Pacific, historically, order and power have been very closely linked, as changes to the regional balance of power often lead to changes in the regional order. And to explain briefly what I mean uh, by those terms, uh, the best definition of order that I found is actually from a major RAND study uh, describing order as the body of rules, norms, and institutions that govern relations among the key players in the international environment, which is important to distinguish from the concept of power, uh, which is both the ability to do something or act in a particular way, as well as the ability to direct or influence the behavior of others. So the book describes really um, how these dynamics have evolved in Asia over the centuries, that for centuries, the China was the dominant geopolitical force in the region and therefore established a Sinocentric order, which was gradually overthrown by the arrival of the West and the rise of Japan. Uh, and Japan sought to establish a more colonial style of regional order with itself as the top, only to be replaced after World War II with a system dominated by the United States. The book describes the resulting U.S.-led order as fundamentally liberal in that international laws, norms, and institutions are used as a means to overcome the instability caused by pure power politics in international relations. Uh, uh, Professor John Eikenberry from Princeton describes the resulting order as composed of open markets, economic security and the social bargain, multilateral institution, institutional cooperation, human rights and progressive change, security binding, Western democratic solidarity, and American hegemonic leadership. In my book, I add a few other characteristics to that, um, an, an open and stable global commons uh, that facilitated closer economic integration and political interactions, economic integration through the Bretton Woods institutions, uh, the peaceful resolution of disputes through international laws and institutions, and the promotion of democratic governance. The result of all this of this liberal order has been a period of unprecedented peace, stability, and prosperity. There have been no major, there have been no wars between major developed powers, no great power wars since 1953, and no interstate wars in Western Europe. The world has seen a reduction of deadliness, a number of international conflicts overall, and renewed activism for conflict prevention 
and dispute management in the international community. The benefits of the system have been felt especially strongly in the Indo-Pacific. The only major conflicts in the region in decades have been the ongoing conflicts in Afghanistan and between India and Pakistan, uh, uh, with no major conflict since the end of the Korean War. Only other state-based conflicts today in the region are internal conflicts in Myanmar and the Philippines, and they're certainly disturbing these, all these conflicts, but they're nothing near the massive conflicts seen in the region previously. Today, East Asia ranks just below Europe as one of the, most, as one of the world's most prosperous and stable regions. The third main point that my book makes is that uh, as um, the region continues to grow in significance for the United States and for the world, uh, it is also undergoing another tectonic shift in its balance of power. Um, and that although it's still evolving, this new era in the, in the Indo-Pacific appears to be driven by two overriding variables, China's rising power and persistent questions about the sustainability and credibility of American power. Taken together, these two factors are breeding profound sense of uncertainty across the Indo-Pacific and threatens the existing liberal regional order. The fourth main point is that a risen and increasingly assertive China represents a profound challenge to American power and the liberal regional order. Now, the book spends a great deal of time discussing the rise of China and its implications, but in the interest of brevity for this discussion, I'll highlight the book's main points about China. Uh, first, it assesses what China wants and argues that Beijing's ultimate vision for the future mixes both domestic and foreign policy. It envisions a revitalized China that is stable and prosperous at home, dominant in Asia, in Asia and influential around the world in ways that ensures that the Chinese Communist Party is able to pursue its interests and prerogatives without restriction. Although Beijing is likely to approach, uh, to, to view its approach to these issues as benevolent and virtuous, a Chinese-led world order would nevertheless cast aside assumptions of liberal internationalism and embrace a system founded on calculations of raw power, subtle influence, hierarchy, and great power spheres of influence. Part of this, I believe, can be attributed to the influence of Xi Jinping, who's embraced international assertiveness and ambition beyond those of his predecessors. Yet I also believe it can be attributed to the Chinese Communist Party itself, which is both the driver and purpose of all political activity that is considered legitimate in China. On issues as diverse as attempts to influence foreign academics and force foreign companies to toe the party line, China's foreign policy is clearly used as a mechanism through which the party pursues its objectives. The book further argues that China's approach to foreign policy as a great power will be different than previous great powers, such as the United States or Great Britain, and assesses that China will pursue a foreign policy primarily motivated by domestic considerations, one that is fundamentally shaped by the party's ideology and its approach to history, that China will approach international institutions and laws from a highly exceptionalist standpoint, that Beijing will pursue a China-centric hierarchical system reminiscent of the tributary system of old, uh, which I refer to as a neo-tributary system, which involves a mix of formal and informal relationships and influence, influence arrangements based on natural deference to China's preferences, based on its economic, political, technological, and cultural dominance and superiority. That China's foreign policy as a great power will utilize all elements of national power to achieve its aims, and that its vision necessarily involves a more circumscribed role for the United States in the region. China's diplomats often uh, say they seek what they call uh, hubutong, which translates as harmony, not uniformity. 
and it's a an old, it's a use of an old Confucian saying. But what it means in this context, though, and from Beijing's view, is that China does not seek to explicitly dominate international relations, but only to ensure that the rest of the world can live in harmony with China. And I add editorially, as opposed to China living in harmony with the rest of the world, uh, as Beijing pursues its interests. Uh, the book also identifies several implications of these attributes for the United States. Um, saying that China will operate under their firm belief in a de facto hierarchy of nations, although Beijing will formally subscribe to the inherent sovereign equality of all nations, that Beijing will seek to establish spheres of influence in the region across multiple domains, that China will be a major power competitor, unlike uh, any other power we've seen before, in that it's wealthy, powerful, Leninist, technocratic, authoritarian, ambitious, and increasingly willing to tolerate risk and external turbulence in the pursuit of its goals, uh, and one that is integrated in the same system as the, as the United States and the rest of our allies and partners. And, and that, that distinction between domestic and foreign policy will grow increasingly blurred as China pursues its approach. Uh, the book also identifies implications of China's rise for the liberal order, that in the minds of Beijing, its dependence on the existing liberal order makes it dependent on the United States, which they see as unacceptable. Uh, considering that Beijing sees Washington's determination to prevent China from assuming its uh, proper place in the regional and global order. A rising China with ambitions to dominate Asia and reconfigure the regional uh, order to better accord with the interests of the Chinese Communist Party threatens to undermine the liberal character of the, the Indo-Pacific order and the stability and prosperity it has achieved. On the fifth main point of the book, uh, that in addition to the challenges associated with the rise in China, there are also deep uncertainties among adversaries, allies, and partners alike about the sustainability and reliability of American power. This goes beyond the Trump administration. It's a fear of abandonment and distraction from our allies and partners always, is always present, but it's really intensified uh, with uh, several factors, the seemingly unending wars that the United States has been fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the rise of China, uh, and after the 2008 financial crisis especially. Uh, yet the fundamental power of the United States, I believe, remains strong even compared to that of China. Yet recognizing these dynamics, the Obama administration pursued the pivot or strategic rebalancing, as Jane mentioned before. And I assess that it was, the rebalance was partially successful in that it succeeded in strengthening our engagement in the region and sustaining high-level attention, enhancing our allies, our alliances and partnerships. Uh, but at the same time, I believe it failed in other areas to shift other aspects of, our, of American power, such as military aid and diplomacy. Um, but I say most damaging, uh, the worst failure was uh, its failure to, the Obama administration's failure to pass TPP. And that these trends, I believe, have worsened under the Trump administration uh, with the president's uh, transactional approach uh, to alliances with uh, special measures agreements and host nation support being an example, uh, that he describes alliances as unfair, taking advantage of the United States, uh, as well as his apparent comfort in dealing with autocratic leaders like uh, Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un. Uh, together, these factors raise questions for Indo-Pacific nations that so far really have no definitive answer. Uh, do presidents non President Trump's non-traditional views represent a fundamental change? in how the American people view the role of the, world, of the United States in the world? Is President Trump's, uh, will have, he have an effect? Uh, is he the effect of this change or is he the cause of this change and the rise of nationalism in the United States? 
once his administration is over, be that in 2021 or 2025, will the United States return to its traditional foreign policies, or is President Trump an indication of what may come? Um, and my book is not, does not intend to answer any of those questions, but rather it's to identify that uncertainty as driving countries, uh, middle powers especially, including our allies and partners, to develop strategies to cope with these profound uncertainties. Um, while power differentials may vary depending on the dimension of uh, the issue in question, um, the interconnectedness of states, which varies with respect to trade, military ties, et cetera, combined with great power competition will make the Indo-Pacific an increasingly complex strategic environment for years to come and in a, a complex environment that these allies will need to navigate. And so the book argues uh, that the balance of power in the Indo-Pacific will be increasingly measured via continually evolving assessment of overlapping hierarchies of relative levels of existing and potential national power across multiple domains, uh, what, what I refer to as a heterarchy. Uh, basically saying that this heterarchy will inform great power competition in the Indo-Pacific and likewise drive the development of strategies by the region's middle powers to hedge against this uncertainty. Um, for our, most of our allies and partners, this will involve a complex mix of external balancing with the United States in that they see the U.S. as the only country capable of checking China, while at the same time um, externally regional balancing without the United States with other Indo-Pacific countries uh, especially when the United States fails to take on that leadership mantle, um, as well as in what we in the political science world call internal balancing, uh, developing their own internal capabilities to protect against the possibility of American abandonment, while at the same time engaging China. For the United States, uh, this means that it, its approach to Asia must include all elements of national power if it seeks to compete in this increasingly complex Asian hierarchy. As the, and I'll talk a bit more about this towards the end. As the dynamic progresses, um, the region's hierarchy is likely to develop into a series of overlapping spheres of geographic and functional influence in which the United States and China have competing systems that other countries will pick and choose from, uh, depending on what they see as being in their interest. So be it economic trade blocks represented by RCEP, the TPP, telecommunications and cybersecurity standards, infrastructure development mechanisms, uh, countries will likely try to pick and choose between these different functional areas, depending on who they see as dominant and most uh, adept at um, addressing their specific uh, national interests. So in this new regional hierarchy, major powers are likely to compete for advantage across all aspects of national power, while the middle powers hedge to maximize flexibility and minimize vulnerability to coercion or domination. As a result, Asia will grow increasingly unstable, unpredictable, and increasingly well-armed, a dynamic that will test the ability of the United States to sustain a liberal order. The book then argues that the time has come for the U.S. strategy, for the U.S. to adjust its strategy towards the Indo-Pacific, for that strategy to enter a new phase, that we have an opportunity to revitalize our alliances and partnerships, to harness their growing capabilities and empower them, to play a more significant role in sustaining liberal principles in the regional order. The fact that most U.S. allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific have to date emphasized balancing, that they're engaging uh, externally with the United States, with other countries, and building their own capabilities rep represents to me an opportunity for the United States. And that one surprising lesson over the past three years, and I expect many dissertations will be written about this in the future, was 
surprising resilience of U.S. alliances and partnerships in the face of rising threats from China and perceptions of decline, distraction, and outright hostility from the United States. Uh, despite the concerns that our allies and partners may have about abandonment from the United States, they instead have continued to seek our help uh, as the only power that can check the rising China and help them maintain autonomy and sovereignty. So I'll quickly now try to describe the strategy detailed in the book. I realize we're running short on time and I want to get to the Q&As, but broadly speaking, the, the strategy seeks to, at the strategic level uh, for the United States to focus its energies and allies and partners on preserving the key principles that have made the liberal order so beneficial for its own interests and for the rest of the region, and that we can't do it alone. Um, as the capabilities of our allies and partners expand, the United States has an opportunity to harness the power of like-minded nations to evolve the regional system in a way that sustains these principles. Um, and the first step is to build a shared vision for a 21st century order with our allies and partners that sustains critical principles um, that made the post-war liberal order successful. And those principles actually take, uh, Dr. Kissinger actually described these in one of his books as an inexorably expanding cooperative order of states observing common rules and norms, embracing liberal economic systems, forswearing territorial conquests, respecting national sovereignty, and adopting participatory and democratic systems of government. Second, the U.S. should engage allies and partners in a broader competition with China. This will broadly involve pushing back against Chinese assertiveness in its efforts to bolster American, uh, I'm sorry, in its efforts to undermine liberal international principles. The U.S. will need to bolster American power and engagement in the region while also encouraging external and internal balancing among allies and partners that strengthens their ties to the U.S. and encourages them to contribute more to the liberal international order. The U.S. should empower them to better defend themselves and assert interests in ways to strengthen key principles of that order. They must be able to assert their own rights, defend their own sovereignty, and preserve their uh, geopolitical independence from Chinese coercion. It's really a confederated rather than a unipolar support, uh, system of support for, that, for liberalism. Third, the U.S. should work with its allies and partners to support and strengthen regional and international institutions to push back against Chinese influence and advocate for laws and norms based on liberal principles uh, in the global commons and beyond. Fourth, the U.S. should strengthen its own regional military capabilities and those, and, and those of its allies and partners. That a lot of these allies and partners are investing more in military capabilities anyway, and the U.S. can shape them toward greater interoperability and more useful capabilities. This will require strengthening and reforming security assistance efforts and should focus on buttressing regional maritime security as well as island defense capabilities. Um, and I get into more detail on that in the actual book, but this involves many different, many different initiatives, but ultimately it means the U.S. must redefine how it thinks about alliance from one that's primarily military-centric um, to one that is comprehensive, a comprehensive platform for cooperation across all elements of national power including economic engagement, information exchanges, protection against political influence, pressing new international laws and reforming institutions, development and infrastructure assistance, setting new technology standards, et cetera. And finally, um, a note on this, on this uh, framework, that empowering our allies and partners cannot be done as a substitute for American power. Uh, the book makes the argument that we need to invest in our own um, foundations of American power defined very broadly, not just defense, but diplomacy, infrastructure, education, immigration, that um, when we try to do this before to shift responsibility 
uh, to our allies and partners uh, with the Nixon Doctrine, we saw uh, a lot of countries looking to their own, developing their own nuclear weapons as a result of um, concerns about the United States turning away. So we need to bolster our own power as we also seek to bolster the capabilities of allies and partners. Uh, the book goes through a study of a number of countries um, looking at specifically what we could do with each of these countries. It looks at ASEAN broadly, Australia, Europe, India, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, Taiwan, Vietnam. Um, but broadly speaking, even though we may see the Indo-Pacific from a regional perspective, we also need to recognize that any strategy to enhance the capabilities of our allies and partners can't be one size fits all. And each country brings its own history, interests, concerns, politics, and ambitions. So uh, we need to find a way to adapt our regional strategy to be compatible with those of our allies and partners. Uh, and that means rhetorically as well as substantively that some countries will not be interested specifically in competing with China, but there's certain things that we could do with them in terms of enhancing military capabilities, pressing for liberal laws and institutions that um, could help us in our competition with China, even if it's not explicitly about that when we work with, uh, when we work with those specific countries. Similarly, some countries are not interested in liberal order, but they will, their interests do align in specific areas where we can cooperate and support of the liberal order is more, is more of a tertiary benefit rather than the direct approach. Uh, so broadly speaking, in conclusion, uh, these relationships, our alliances and partnerships, are fundamental geopolitical assets for the United States and a critical strategic advantage. It is especially true in the Indo-Pacific where geopolitical shifts has both highlighted the benefits of the liberal order while simultaneously risking its, its uh, diminution. It's a fundamental interest of the United States to preserve these liberal principles, and we can't do it uh, without robust engagement from Washington and a strategy that empowers our allies and partners. Um, for over a century, American strategy towards the Indo-Pacific has shifted between a focus on continental Asia and a focus on um, maritime Asia, a debate more currently replicated by those advocating for a strategy focused on China, rather than a strategy focused on America's allies and partners. Um, some may interpret this book, and my argument I explained to you is a call for the latter, that the United States needs to base a strategy on its alliances and partnerships. But rather, uh, it's the duality of American strategy towards the Indo-Pacific that I believe should, needs to shift. Uh, that's because the Indo-Pacific is no longer a peripheral theater to a broader strategic drama, but rather the region today is at the center stage of international geopolitics. For us to succeed, the United States can't afford to get China wrong, and we can't afford to get our approach to our allies and partners wrong. In fact, the book argues that the United States' approach to China cannot be successful without a focus on its allies and partners, and our approach to its allies and partners cannot be successful without a realistic and a visionary strategy for China. Uh, no longer, we don't see these are no longer dichotomies, rather they're aspects of an Indo-Pacific strategy that are now inextricably interwoven. So preserving liberal order in the Indo-Pacific will be critical to our interests, uh, and our allies and partners have a critical role to play in contributing to the health and success of this international order. Too often, uh, Washington's competitive strategies, especially outside the military sphere, have been simply to oppose Beijing at every turn, from the AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, to the Belt and Road Initiative, to Huawei. It seems that Washington's strategy too often boils down to just say no. Unfortunately, that's not going to cut it in an increasingly competitive and consequential Indo-Pacific. The United States needs a compelling liberal alternative for our countries, for other countries to choose and to promote a transparent, rules-based environment that allows for open and honest competition between those visions. Ultimately, Washington must have the confidence in his own vision 
and, and that countries in the middle will align more with, with the United States more often, not because of liberal, not because of any power calculations necessarily, but rather because liberalism is fundamentally a better deal than illiberalism. If we fail to preserve the liberal order and allow our allies and partners to continue to wither, uh, the strategic disaster the way. Uh, if we don't define the geopolitics of the 21st century, China will be free to remake the system according to its own interests and its own values. Um, I think the United States still remains well-suited to lead the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we've never been a country to sit on our laurels. Um, rather, we're a country that is aspirational, vigorous, consistently optimistic that uh, we can be a force for good in the world. Uh, and this, I think, American policymakers uh, seeking, to, seeking to strengthen the region's liberal order can embrace the ideals of our Constitution, which envision a more perfect union, um, and embrace a vision that's uh, optimistic, aspiring, and positive uh, for the region going forward. Okay, Abe, it's Jane. I don't, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I think that there are a lot of questions waiting, and it's 20 minutes to 3, so... I, I think people will, will probe a lot of your, your ideas more deeply, and you've expressed them in, in, in great detail. And it obviously is a, a very comprehensive book, and everyone at the Wilson Center is proud of you. So could I get to questions now? Would that work for you? Absolutely. Your, your, your timing was immaculate, Jane. Immaculate. Of course it was. Uh, I'm only going to ask one question uh, because I know we have teed up questions from uh, General David Petraeus and Sir John Scarlett, followed by questions from others. We have a very high-level audience on this call, and I, I'm still not exactly clear how uh, one asks the questions. I know Dave and John are, are teed up, uh, whether it's star one, I think maybe we're still in that mode, or whether you, uh, why don't you do both, press star one and also email Nora, nora.bodner at wilsoncenter.org, and then we'll be fully covered in cosmic fashion. I have one question. I mentioned the WHO in, in my opening remarks, and there is a an article in the, the, the print version of the New York Times. I still buy that and read that. Uh, titled, WHO Members Ignore Trump's Threat to Withdraw, Leaving the U.S. Isolated. And the story is about the meeting in Geneva earlier this week where, uh, and I'm basically uh, quoting from this article, representatives of the organization's member nations rallied around the WHO at its annual meeting, largely ignoring Mr. Trump's demand for an overhaul and calling for a global show of support in the face of a deadly pandemic. The outcome left the United States isolated as officials from China, Russia, and the European Union chided Mr. Trump over his heated threats, even as they acknowledged the need for a review of how the WHO performed uh, as the virus spread uh, from China to the rest of the world. I'm just asking, um, you know, we didn't talk much about the pandemic except as an accelerator of all the other stuff, but how big a deal is this, and is this maybe in a microcosm uh, a, a, a metaphor for how the U.S. is, at the moment, wrong-footed. Yeah, I, um, the book, thanks, thanks, Jane, the book actually was finished before the, the uh, pandemic came out, so I've uh, been writing an article that applies uh, the strategy and its thinking towards the pandemic, and I think they're quite compatible. Um, in terms of what's happened at the WHA, I do think it's an interesting microcosm um, and what's interesting is that the, the Trump administration tried to use the meeting as a way to, as a way to bring together uh, international condemnation of the Chinese. 
um, but it had no real foundation to build those relation to, uh, of relationships to build that consensus um, in that it had been spending the last three years undermining its relationships with a lot of these key countries uh, and therefore find itself isolated. I was actually asked if, uh, earlier um, if um, the U.S. support for Taiwan in the WHA was going to upset the Chinese. And, I, and my answer really was that not really, um, in that clearly they don't like it, but if you look at the, the WHA meeting that you mentioned, Beijing was able to diffuse international criticism by accepting a comprehensive review um, while also keeping Taiwan out and over the strong objections of the United States and other countries. And so I think China's leaders saw that as uh, demonstrating China's continued strength um, despite the pandemic, while also demonstrating Washington's deepening isolation and effectiveness. I, there's a bit of an own goal there. I think the Trump administration did a lot to isolate itself uh, in, the, in the system, but at the same time, I think China has been fairly effective at pushing them along um, and doing what it needs to do to build enough consensus in order to dodge the main bullets, while at the same time doing what it needs to look like it's being cooperative, and, even though I'm quite doubtful they'll do that. Uh, going forward. So I see all that meeting as an indication of how power politics is going to work post-coronavirus. And it looks like the Chinese are have a, a much have a head start over the United States right now in terms of international influence.